Hello and welcome to the Adventure Podcast. This podcast is about helping listeners learn from and meditate on our sermons from anywhere at any time. Thanks for joining and let's get started. It's good to be back with you guys. Uh, it's good to be working through this series here. And like I said, I, I appreciate this series because um, what we're talking through and what we're, uh, what we're working through are questions that a lot of people have. And maybe, maybe the questions you already worked through, maybe there are questions that you look at and go, wow, I don't even think on that. I don't, I don't think through stuff at that level. There are a lot of other people around you who are. And some of them may be family members. Some of them may be uh, kids, coworkers. Um, people you work with, you know, whatever. Uh, There are a lot of people in our culture and our society who are asking these kinds of questions. And the one today, uh, at first it may feel like a little, little weird one, and that is this question. There's a belief out there that religion actually makes people less moral. Okay, some of you are wondering how that works, how that works out. Well, the, the idea has kind of gained traction in the, the 20th century, um, particularly as secularism really kind of came into its own. But the 21st century, we've had some things happen that really, man, if you just look on the surface, I, I kind of understand how people have come to start believing this. You know, most of us remember 9-11, right? We watched the, uh, we watched the Coptic bombings in Egypt. We watched the, the Bastille Day uh, attack in France. Some of you changed your profile pics uh, when, when the girls were uh, kidnapped by Boko Haram. And uh, you changed your little, your little flag thing on your Facebook profile. You know, if you go do an internet uh, search for, uh, for terror attacks, uh, not only are you going to find a larger list than you're probably prepared for, but you're also going to find that, man, a lot of those attacks seem to be tied in some way, shape, or form to religious factions. There's also kind of a popular thing that's going on today, which is to look back in history and look at particularly kind of the wars that happened through history and really focus in on those wars through the lens of looking at uh, looking at the religions of the people involved and kind of how how, how that ties in in some way, shape, or form. I, I'll just tell you, it's really easy to go onto Amazon and find a book or go onto YouTube and find a video uh, that lays out a fairly compelling narrative with some conclusions similar to this. Religion has been the cause of most of the suffering and strife in the world. There's a lot of people who believe that. I've had lots of conversations with people who who laid that out to me. I I remember one guy in particular, we sat down, we were having coffee, and he just looked at me and goes, man, looking back on history and all the brokenness through the world, how can you believe it's all religion's fault? Like, how can you still believe religion is a good thing? And again, if you go through and you look at it from that lens, on the surface, the idea is kind of compelling. The question is, Man, how well does this, you know, this charge stand up to real logical scrutiny? Well, there's some basic problems with it. Again, just on a a basic logic level, there's really three problems. And again, I kind of talked about this last week. We're skimming the surface on all of these subjects, all right? These are just a springboard maybe for you to dive in a little bit deeper later. But let's kind of talk about three real basic problems with this premise. The first one is it just simply lacks specificity. It's not very specific, right? 
religion is a big word. I mean, religion covers a lot of ground and a lot of history, right? The term religion covers everything from ISIS all the way to the Amish. Let me tell you, there's a big difference between the ISIS paradise and the Amish paradise. Some of you all have that song stuck in your head the rest of the day. You're welcome. You know, it covers everything from child sacrifices to Molech in the Old Testament to that completely and obsessively nonviolent Buddhist muck sitting on a mountaintop somewhere in Tibet, you know, having his meditation. To, to make any meaningful statement about religion and morality, Man, we gotta be more specific than that. I, I would say this, and I just propose this, even within Christianity, I want a clear line drawn between what we understand the Bible to say and the teachings of the Westboro Baptists. We just have to be more specific. It's just a too generalized of a statement. Second problem is it doesn't really fit the data. Yet every day, religious people act immorally. You know, we've gotta own that up front. Right? Some of those we could excuse away, yeah, they're little things, they're just everybody does those things. At the same time, there are some things that people do either in the name of religion or just, you know, people who claim to be religious that are frankly, they're horrific. You know, I, I have sat and wept with people over the abuses of clergy in the Catholic Church as well as evangelical churches. I, I, I don't want to play like like those who identify with Christianity or any other religion don't make mistakes and immoral choices. I mean, I do. We do. With that said, though, that statement about the data, you know, the research data does not conclude that religious people are less moral than their secular counterparts. It's just not there in any research or studies. In fact, there have been a number of studies that concluded there is a, a link between religious participation and better moral outcomes. One study found that uh, w w domestic, it was a study on domestic violence. They found among U.S. men, um, domestic violence was almost twice as high for those who did not attend church services once a week versus men who did. Uh, there's 43 other crimes that other research have identified that are markedly lower among those who, uh, who observe religious participation. Another study, uh, looking back, has concluded that people who attend religious services regularly donate three and a half times the money given by non-religious counterparts per year, and they volunteer twice as much. I tell you, doing a lot of disaster recovery, some of it here with Adventure, some of it with Tony, um, man, I'll just tell you, there's a bunch of religious groups that they flock in and they keep helping and they keep going even when all the secular ones and the government agencies have pulled out. You know, having said all that, if you do an internet search and you, uh, you, you type in, are religious people more moral than atheists, you will also find a plethora of articles that claim the data I just cited to you is not, it's, it's, it's just, it's not good data. Uh, read those claims carefully. I will just say this. You'll notice they all have the same language because they all come off one specific article that talks about that. But regardless, whatever your conclusion about that data that I just cited, there are no studies that I can find, and I, I looked hard for this. There's no studies I've ever seen that cite that say religious people are less moral than atheists or secular humanists. Just in there. 
Tell you what has been identified, and I think anecdotally most of us would, would look at it and go, yeah, I, I, can, I can buy into this based on the people I know I can buy into this, and that is that, that research has found that more and more people every year are concerned about the, the moral condition of our nation. So that is statistically, we know that research is out there. And there's a growing consensus of people every year this grows, people who say knowing what is right or wrong is a matter of personal experience. And I would just tell you, those two correlate. Those two definitely go together. Third thing is, is it assumes a universal measuring stick. Let me ask you this question. How easy is it to get your extended family to agree on something? Anything right? How about your, your social media friends list? Usually it's hard enough just for my wife and I to decide where to go eat, right? Like getting people to, to come together and really, really totally buy into something's really hard. And this is one of the problems with this statement that religion hinders morality. The world doesn't agree on the definition of morality. We don't all agree on what is and is not moral. There's no universal measuring stick. There never has been one since sin entered into the world. There's no self-evident truth that all Christians, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, atheists, and Pastafarians, which that's a real thing. They wear a colander on their head, but it's a whole other thing. There's nothing all of us agree on. So that sounds a little bit depressing, right? Who has the right answer, or maybe at the very least, who has the best path forward that moves us in the right direction? Well, I, I want to spend a little time answering that, but first I think we need to talk about the kind of this definition of what morality actually is first. So the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, I know this is kind of highbrow for some of you, but we'll go to go use that. Uh, there's a... It just, it defines morality in two different ways. So one is descriptive, the other is normative. Descriptive means this is kind of like the textbook definition. Normative is, this is, that's the textbook. This is how it actually happens in real life, okay? So the, the textbook definition is to refer to a certain codes of conduct put forward by a society or a group, such as religion, or accepted by an individual for her own behavior. So in other words, it is just this code that's laid out. So that's, that's really, it's either put out by a person, like it's your own personal code of conduct, or it's one that you've assumed from a family, or it's one that you've assumed from a religion. So that's kind of the, the textbook definition. The normative one, the real world, is to refer to a code of conduct that given specified conditions would be put forward. Now underline this next, next phrase. By all rational people. <laughs> Define rational people for me. This is where it breaks down. Even within the definition, we've got a problem here. This is why it's so hard. Morality in a nutshell really comes down to answering three basic questions. Number one, why should I do good things? You've asked that question of yourself before. <laughs> At some point you've asked, why should I go do that? Question number two, why should I not do bad things? This is the question your mom asked you constantly growing up. Question number three, and this is the one where I, I really think the rubber hits the road. Why should I do good or not do bad things when they cost me something? See, I, that, that's when it starts meddling a little bit, right? Morality really comes down to what we value. Which, by the way, when we talk about what people value, we're really talking about what? We're talking about worship, right? 
When environmentalism is at the very top value spot, um, the planet is the most important thing. Which, by the way, um, is why, you know, environmentalists who really go all in on something, uh, they, they really, many of them come to the conclusion the earth would be better off without human beings in it. That's called antinatalism. It's actually somewhat popular. Yet humanism puts the human species at the top which I don't know if you know this or not, there's a big fight that's going on in academia between science and philosophy departments. So morality historically has always been something that was kind of dealt with by philosophy departments or theology departments. Well, more and more, especially over about the last 50 years, what we've seen is a lot of scientists really stepping in, trying to figure out this morality thing. They've waded into the waters. Why? Because secular humanists and atheists are obsessed with finding a way to prove morality doesn't have to rely on a religious foundation. This is really important to understand and, and to move off of that as a foundation point. They're working hard to figure out how to build a case for a freestanding universal morality. It's imperative to prove that secular humanism is the way to move our society forward. Because you can't have a society without a baseline, a foundation of morality that everybody agrees on, and you have to have something to found that on. So a lot of people have worked on this through the years. David Hume was a philosopher. He believed morality could be ascertained for our sentiments or our sympathy. All right, so when you feel bad, that, that tells you right or wrong. Immanuel Kant believed we could build a foundation for morality out of reason, rights. He talked a lot about duty. So it's like our, our duty to take care of, our duty to protect, our duty to do this, our duty to do that. Jeremy Bentham looked to the greatest good for humanity as a guide. So he said, regardless of what it means for you as an individual, what we should really look to, it doesn't, you don't matter in the grand scheme of things. What matters is what is best for everybody. Sam Harris has proposed that material needs and experience lay out the framework to determine what's good and bad. Peter Singer, another guy who's uh, fairly popular in, in this day and age, argues that, that beings should be valued according to their capacities of self-awareness, their ability to suffer. And so that foundational belief has led him in lectures to kind of opine on the fact that the life of a newborn baby, a human baby, is of less value than the life of a pig that's lived for a few years or a dog or a chimpanzee, right? Because it's been around longer, it's a little more self-aware than that newborn infant. See, where you start from, it's going to take you somewhere. Your foundation is going to lead into every other little piece of life and how you view it and how you process through it. That's why this stuff's so important. And I just say, notice that the brightest secular atheists can't agree on how to figure out what is one of the most fundamental aspects of sociology. Nobody has ever really come up with a solid foundation for a non-religious moral framework that everybody can buy into. Probably the most concerted effort to do that was back in 1948 by the UN, and it was called the Declaration of Human Rights. And this is what a lot of, a lot of humanists, a lot of atheists will point back to and say, see, we don't need a God. We, we can come up with a document like this. The UN on its website calls it the milestone document in the history of human rights. Now, what's interesting is, since it was adopted back in 1948, there's no country that's taken that whole document and put it into their founding documents that actually lay out law for that, that country. 
Matter of fact, I mean, it's only sections of it that have ever really been adopted. And even more so than that, when it was, when it was originally put out there, there were a bunch of countries, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, North Korea, China, India, who objected it and opposed it because they said, you know what, when we read this, all we see is Western Christianity into it. In other words, you say this is a secular document, but when we look at it, that's a Christian document. So they couldn't get away from it. With all this in view, um, Ronald Osborne, he concludes, core humanistic values of inviolable human dignity and alienable human rights and intrinsic human equality cannot be upheld by a scientific naturalism that will always ultimately crumble into nihilism. Nihilism means it just breaks down to the point where everything's bad. Rather, they must be sustained by a vision of personhood such as the one found in a historically unprecedented way in Christianity. You know, what's interesting is there's a number of historians, number of scientists, a number of philosophers as they look back on human history, even many of them devout atheists, who've concluded, man, the only real basis that we have for anything that, that we, would, we would call morality in the Western world is Scripture and the Christian framework for morality that springs from it. So what do we do? You know, moral code is the foundation for any community, any society, or any organization. Without it, like nobody can agree on anything. Everything starts to break down. So here's why I believe Christianity is our best foundation for moral standards. In the time left, I just want to show you why I believe this is a real source for finding a working, objective, moral foundation. Now, your atheistic friends, they, they may claim that you don't need any kind of formal guide, right? I can just, I can figure this out for myself. We can all each kind of have our own moral guide to, to kind of guide us. But I'll just go back to those secular humanists and those atheists I quoted from a few minutes ago who were looking for some framework. They believe that's not true. Like as a culture, as a society, again, as a community, we need something we all agree on. And I just say that's a reality check we all have to deal with. We need someone, we need something to lay out a moral framework for us. Otherwise, even as a, even as a church, right? We've got our core values. We're going to go through uh, discovering adventure, right? Part of that is going through the core values of the church. What is that? That's laying out the things that we can agree on because you can't have a group of people in a room work together without agreeing on some real basic premises. And hopefully by now in our discussion, it's become obvious at no point in human history have we been able to unite all people in some agreed upon universal moral code. And I think the book of Romans lays out why that's the case. Look at Romans chapter one, verses 19 through 25. I'm gonna jump around a little bit in this section here. So I'm gonna read verses 21, 22, and 25. Paul writes, he says, people knew God. So he's going back to like when sin entered into the world. And he says, here's what sin has done to us. He said, people knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they begin to, to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Know anybody like that? Going to verse 25, they traded the truth about God for a lie. And so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. 
Look, this is the biblical reason why we can't figure this out together. The brokenness of sin is affecting all of us. We're all at least a little bit prideful, at least a little bit selfish. And we have a tendency to struggle with those three questions we talked about earlier, right? Why should I do good? That's really easy to answer when it benefits me or it benefits somebody that I care about, right? It's easy to do good things when it's going to benefit me or somebody I love. When it's going to benefit somebody I can't stand, that gets a little bit harder, right? How about that cost thing, right? Why shouldn't I do something bad as easy when it doesn't cost me anything or when it doesn't benefit me at all, right? But man, we get to that other one. Those of you thinking I can be good without God, define good for me. Kind of good? Yeah, maybe you can pull that off depending on the day, right? Totally good all the time? None of us. Not me. Definitely not Tony. (laughs) Thousands of years ago, this was spelled out in Scripture. They already knew this. Look at Ecclesiastes 7.20. Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Probably the most depressing verse in all of scripture, Jeremiah 17, 9. Who can understand the human heart? There's nothing else so deceitful, it's too sick to be healed. Which, by the way, when you get to the New Testament, I think that's why it constantly says God wants to replace our heart with a new one, not just fix the one we got. Can a a non-religious person do good things? Yeah, absolutely. Sure, I'm not trying to say that that's not possible. Can a religious person live worse than a non-religious person? Again, totally possible. I can give you some names of some people who've lived their entire lives in the church who are nasty, horrific people. Their, Their kids don't even like them. No, I'm serious. I can give you a list of names. I've been around them, right? So that's possible too. At no point, though, are any of us perfectly good, and deep down, we all, we all do know that. To those people who may be pushing back and saying, yeah, you think Christians are morally superior to everybody else, that's not at all what Christianity teaches. Now, as I was researching this topic, I ran across an, et- an essay written by a guy named Paul Watson. Anybody know who that is? He's a, he's a captain of a ship called the Sea Shepherd, and they go out and protect whales. And I mean, if you want to kind of put extreme environmentalist as a title on somebody, this is probably the guy. But he wrote, this, he wrote this essay. The title of the essay is, Human Lives Are Not More Important Than Animal Lives. So I think you can see where this is going. But there was a quote in there as I was reading through that that just really caught me. He said this, every single anthropocentric religion, so in other words, every religion basically that humans follow, uh, places human beings at the center of everything and above all other species, which is what he's really railing about in this essay. And he says, we fashion God in our image in order to justify our superiority. We fashion God in our own image. I actually think he's onto something. He stumbled onto some truth right there. Go back to that passage in Romans. What did Paul tell us? People traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself. We created our own gods, and I would just suggest to you that's at the heart of every other religion that exists on this earth, including humanism, environmentalism, and atheism. But hear me out. That's not what Christianity teaches Christianity teaches we were made in the image of God, right? Not that we made him in our image, but he made us in his. 
And part of that is, is that God is perfect and we were made to be perfect too. And for a very short period of time, we were. And because of sin in this, this world and us in it, it's all a broken reflection of what he originally intended. Romans 8.20 says, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. Look, Christians make no moral claim of superiority. It's actually the opposite. We, we make the opposite claim. We would look at somebody in dead in the eye and say, look, I'm broken, and you're broken. We're all broken. Romans 3.23, everybody has sinned. There's not a lot of loopholes in there, right? We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. Romans 7, 18 through 19, Paul's talking and he says, I know nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I wanna do what's right, but I can't. I wanna do what's good, but I don't. I wanna do what's wrong. I, I don't wanna do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. In 1 Timothy, he wrote to Timothy and he said this to him, verse 15. He said, this is a true saying to be completely accepted and believed. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. What does he say? I'm the worst. <laughs> Christianity presupposes God's superiority over us and all of creation. Christianity makes it really clear we are broken and we can't fix ourselves. I mean, remember that, that analogy last week about the blind men and the elephant? We are the blind men. I mean, that's, that's what we believe. We and all of humanity have blind spots. Therefore, we need something beyond our limited scope and our deficiencies. I can't be good the way you want me to be good and the way I want to be good and definitely the way that my wife wants me to be good. I keep failing at it every day. And to the cynic who would say only weak people need a God-threatening punishment to be moral, I... I would just say to you, man, you, you got the wrong understanding of the God that we worship and follow. I know a lot of Christian traditions and churches and movements have used that as the primary kind of carrot stick out there that, you know, if you don't be good, God's gonna zap you and send you to hell. Um, we do believe there's eternal consequences at stake here. But the God of scripture does not use punishment as the primary motivator, he uses love. Look at John 3, 16 through 17. It's one you've heard before, I know. I wanna read it out of the message translation. Just give us a little different way to think about it. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need to be destroyed. By believing in him, everyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help and put the world right again. Look at Titus 3, 4 through 5. When the kindness and love of God our Savior was revealed, he saved us. And it wasn't because of any good deeds that we ourselves had done. It was because of what? What does it say? It's mercy, right? It saved us. I, I don't follow God's standards because I fear him. In a similar way, I don't stay faithful to my wife simply because I'm afraid that she's going to leave me or be angry with me. I stay faithful because I love her. I do my best to, to do good things for her and for our family and try to restrain my own, as much of my own selfishness as I can because I love them, not because I fear the consequences of what would happen if I didn't. 
I accept God's boundaries and framework for morality because I love him and I trust that he knows a better way through my own brokenness than I do. Man, I have made too many mistakes along the way trying to fix stuff to think I can get this right on my own. Man, I don't believe there's any other framework for morality and for good in this world that holds a candle to Christianity. Let me really quickly summarize and give you the logical progression for why I believe that. One, because I know I'm broken and so are you. That's where I start. Therefore, my perspective is limited and my reasoning is corrupted. Frankly, I don't trust myself and I don't trust you for something this important and this fundamental. I don't trust any other human being for this. Second thing, because I know I need a standard to live up to. My standards are always really subjective to how bad I want something or how I'm feeling on a particular day. I learned a long time ago, I am a phenomenal liar, especially when it comes to lying to myself. Every, every dumb thing I've ever done, I thought was a good idea at some point. Fair? At some point, I convinced myself that this stupid thing to do was a good idea because I'm great at lying to myself. I need a standard that goes beyond what I can convince myself is a good idea or not. God's standard is clear. And let me just tell you, it is way higher than any standard I would ever personally choose for myself. Look at Matthew 5, 48. This is Jesus laying out what that standard is. You're to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Why? Because we were made in his image. He made us to be that originally. Third thing is because I know I need an example. You know, we are only as, in, as inventive as our context. I've traveled all over the place with Tony. We've gone to all kinds of different churches all over the place, into Canada, all over the U.S. And one of the reasons we do that is because we know you can't come up with new answers to the same question you keep going over and over again unless you go expose yourself to some new ideas. So you go look around. Even if it's bad ideas, it may still spur something on. You go, oh, we could do it differently this way, right? That's how you work through that stuff. Yeah, I've found very few people can imagine, imagine something brand new and I need a brand new way to deal with my recurring problems because I've been trying for decades to fix some of them. Look at Hebrews 4, verse 15. Jesus, this high priest of ours, understands our weakness for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he didn't sin. He's got a different way of dealing with this than all the ways I've tried that didn't work. Fourth thing, because I know I need somebody to save me. Again, this is real easy. I learned a long time ago, I can't save myself. Man, I can't make myself be really good, much less perfect. Galatians 2, 19 through 20. This is Paul realizing this. He says, when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And fifth, because I know I need help every day to be better. It's one of the things I love about what God has done for us. He didn't just send us an example in Jesus and then have Jesus go to heaven and go, all right, now, do it. Jesus, you know, when he was getting ready to be gone, he spent a lot of time with his disciples trying to get him ready for that moment he would leave. And he knew they'd freaked out, be freaked out. He knew they would be scared. He knew they would go, we can't do this on our own. And so he made a promise. Remember the promise? 
I promise you, I'm gonna send you a comforter. I'm gonna send you somebody who's gonna give you the answers. I'm gonna send somebody who's gonna give you the power to actually live the way I've shown you how to live. Ephesians 3, 16 through 19, I pray from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through what? Through his spirit. As believers, we have the Holy Spirit living in us through Christ's sacrifice. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him and your roots will grow down into God's love and it'll keep you strong. At the end of the day, we each have to make a choice about what foundation we're gonna use to live our life off of, to direct our life. I've made mine, and I'll just tell you, it's not from some blind faith. It's not because my parents believed this. Man, I, I've been through way too much to just blindly go through things, and as you get to know me, you'll find I, I question everything. I pick everything apart. I, I, I believe in this because as I look at all the options that are out there and I've done as, the best job I can to find as many of them as possible, I find that this is the one that, that provides the greatest truth and, and the consistency that I wanna put as a foundation for my life. We try to do life on our own, man, it just feels like a big pinball machine, getting bounced around from one idea to the next emotion. This is something that you have to make a choice about. You ought to put some thought into it. It's worth considering your foundation. What makes logical sense? Who's qualified to set these standards? Can you pull it off on your own? Can you do it under your own power? Christianity is unique because the God of creation comes after us, not demanding us to be good on our own but with the authority, with the ability, and most of all, the grace to remake us into our original perfection. That's why I love our God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your love for us. I thank you so much for your grace. Scripture says that you loved us, you came after us, you sent Jesus even while we were still in the middle of rebellion against you. Father, you, you've chased after us and you hold out an offer to each one of us. Father, I just simply pray that those of us who have made the choice uh, to align with you through Christ, Father, that we would really consider what we've talked about today and we consider how it lays out in our life and how it directs our life. And we spend some real time on a regular basis going back and looking at our foundation and seeing if it's really the one that you laid out or if we've gotten in the way or we've bought into something from somebody else. And for anybody who's questioning whether they're here in this room today or this weekend or whether they're online watching, Father, if they're seeking after the truth, Father, I just pray that they would seek with an open heart and a clear mind, and Father, that, that you would encounter them. Father, we thank you so much, again, not just for leaving us on our own, but for providing a way, first through Christ, but then also through the Holy Spirit so we can, we can be changed. Thank you for taking these broken hearts and not just remodeling them, not just slapping on some new drywall and making them look better, but Father, giving us a whole new way of living, and a whole new way to see the world, and a whole new way to love. Father, we thank you for Christ, and it's in his name we pray together. Amen.